Let's commit this time to the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, thankful for uh, being able to be here, Lord, gathered around your word. We're thankful that we can stand on your promises. And uh, Lord, uh, we're thankful for the uh, promises that we have in Jesus Christ, Heavenly Father, our Saviour, who gave himself for us. Lord, the promise of eternal life, a promise that you would never leave us nor forsake us, Heavenly Father, for all those that believe in you. So, Lord, as we look at your word, I do pray that you'll be with me, be with my mind, with my mouth, and uh, be with us as uh, we look into your word and uh, learn about your goodness, your mercy, and your long-suffering, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So turn in your Bibles to Exodus, Exodus 34, verse 1. And the Lord said unto Moses, Hew thee two tables of stone, like unto the first, and I will write upon these tables the words that were written, uh, that were in the first tables, which thou breakest. And be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning unto Mount Sinai, and present thyself there to me on the top of the mount. And no man shall come up with thee, neither let any man be seen throughout all the mount, neither let the flocks nor herds feed before that mount. And he hewed two tables of stone like unto the first. And Moses rose up early in the morning, and went up unto the Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand the two tables of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. So here in this passage we have Moses uh, for the second time preparing to go up to uh, Mount Sinai to get the commandments of the Lord. So the reason that Moses had to go up uh, the second time is because the first time uh, he went up to uh, receive the commandments, uh, the people of Israel had quickly turned away uh, from the Lord and uh, were worship, worshipping a golden calf. So the Lord could have, if he wanted to at that time, destroyed every single uh, one of them uh, right then and there, but instead we see the long-suffering of the Lord. It says there in verse 5, And the Lord descended into the cloud and stood within there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So the name of the Lord is not just any name. The name of the Lord has a lot of meaning behind it. Look what it says there in verse 6 that was proclaimed. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. So what we see there is that the Lord is the Lord God. 
See, many people make light of who God is. Many people are careless as to who God is. The Lord God is not just another option of many options. But for many people, the Lord God is just another thing on the to-do list if that just happens to be uh, something that suits them. But unfortunately, the people of Israel had adopted the philosophy of Egypt and carried that out with them uh, when the Lord had delivered them from uh, the land, from, captiv from captivity in Egypt. So in Egypt, there were many uh, competing gods that the Egyptians worshipped. It is said that there were over 2,000 different gods that were worshipped in Egypt. And we live in a world today uh, that is not much different. Now the devil is still as cunning and as, as subtle as he was in the Garden of Eden. So the Israelites were known as the people of God. But how many of them secretly lusted after the life of the Egyptians uh, and the Egyptians' idols? We need to be careful as Christians today living in a, society, in a society that is no different, if not worse, than what Egypt was. There are many things that Christians justify today as if it is from the Lord or that the Lord is okay with it, but in reality, these things are not from the Lord and is just another golden calf of Egypt. Things like music, things like entertainment, even the things that consume our thoughts or our, or our time. See, what is acceptable with the Lord will be very different with what is acceptable with the ungodly society that surrounds us. It'd be very different. The music won't be the same. The entertainment won't be the same. The things that consume our thoughts or our time won't be the same. See, for some people, they gravitate to God for the wrong reasons. For some, they... Uh, may see it as a way out of a certain situation. You know, they want victory in a certain area of their life. But they're not prepared to give the Lord their whole life. For the people of Israel, it was their slavery in Egypt under the Egyptians. But I think for many in Israel, if they could have been delivered out of slavery in Egypt, yet remained in Egypt, that would have been the ideal for them. See, but God not only wanted them to deliver them from slavery in Egypt, but also lead them to the promised land and to be a people separated under God from the ungodly nations that were around them, to be a light to those nations, to be a people of God, delivered and sanctified under God. And, he, and that way they can tell these other people of the other, other nations, come out, come with us, worship our God. See, it didn't take long after their deliverance from slavery before the people of Israel started to carry on like the Egyptians. The Egyptian influences and philosophy uh, that they carried out started to show very soon. Look at chapter 32 of Exodus. So this is uh, the first time that Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments from the Mount Sinai uh, after that they were led out of Egypt. Exodus 32, look at uh, verse 1. 
And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us, for as this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. See, the people, they didn't have a high view of God at all. Now, they had this mentality that Aaron could just make up some more gods. You know, as if the Lord God of Israel is just many, one of many competing gods who are at the beck and call of man. This is the Egyptian philosophy and deception from Satan. We see there that their focus was on man and not on God. They said, as for Moses, the man that led us out, as for Moses, that's, you know, they were following man. Yes, God used Moses to lead them out of the land, but it was God that brought them out of the land, not Moses. See, God used men to pen down his words that we have here in the Bible. God also uses man to proclaim his words that are written down. But he can also use a donkey if he wants to, and he has done that. Jesus even said if these should hold their peace, talking about uh, the people uh, that were pro proclaiming his triumphant uh, entry into Jerusalem, if you could hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. See, Moses didn't lead the Israelites out of Egypt. God did it. He just used Moses, a fallible man, to do it. See, there are so many shipwrecked Christians around today because they've put so much emphasis on the man, of, the, the man that God may abuse instead of the Lord God himself. We need to understand that men are fallible, but God is infallible. We can't come to God because of the man. We can only come to God because of who he is and how he reveals himself in the Bible. See, at the end of the day, and I'm not disrespecting all respect to, the, to those people that God uses. And I thank God for every single one of them. Every single one of them. But what really matters is what does God say? What does God say? Am I following God for who he is and who he reveals himself to be? Or am I following a man? Because if you follow a man, then your faith can get shaken very quickly. And I believe before you know it, you'll be uh, doing those things uh, that plagued you in your old life. Like these people in Israel that came out of Egypt. See, it shouldn't matter what has become of Moses up there on the mountain. Am I doing this for Moses or am I doing it for God? That should have been their attitude. You know, am I trusting Jesus Christ for what he did for me on the cross? Am I trusting in Jesus Christ because he delivered me from my sin? And not just my situation. Yes, he can deliver you out of the situation, but that's not why you're trusting in Jesus Christ. It's because he delivered you from his sin. Am I concerned with what he says and where he wants me to go? Is that my motivation? Because that's what should motivate every one of us to keep following the Lord no matter what.
I'm going to follow the Lord because he is Lord God. So we see there in verse 2, Aaron says to them, And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them uh, unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. How many Christians today are living in this uh, denial, this same kind of denial? They are living no different than the Egyptians, with the same gods and idols of the society around them. And they, just, they justify it because of maybe their pastor or someone else who has a position is okay with it and has pandered to the wants of the congregation. As if the same God is, who is okay with the sinful practices of Egypt is the same God that brought them out of Egypt. As if the same God who delivered you from your sin is the same God who's okay with the Christians uh, going to something like a Taylor Swift concert. Who sings about getting drunk, fornicating, and even murder when I looked up the lyrics of some of her songs. They're, they're, they're bad, they're wrong. It's horrible. But you have Christians today even promoting these people and wearing their merchandise. I saw a man... Uh, just the other day, who I know is a professing Christian, wearing an ACDC T-shirt. You know, what has a Christian got to do with the band ACDC who promote the highway to hell? Yet he was wearing an ACDC. I know he's a professing Christian. But if that's who they think God is and that he is okay with that, then they are merely worshipping a golden calf. I wonder how many professing Christians have gone to see that filth for entertainment or have a ticket to this Taylor Swift while they drive around in their car listening to that filth played on the radio. See, I know because I used to be one of them until the Lord got hold of my heart and he showed me who he was through his word 11 years ago. I went from worshipping my own golden car so to speak, a God of my own imagination, then I went to worshipping the true Lord God. I repented and I trusted in Christ for the first time with all of my heart and he saved me. And the Lord started working the philosophy of Egypt out of my life and I wanted it to be so. I was done with it, and I still am today. And the Lord is still working in me today, and he will continue to work in me. But look at verse 5 and 6. And when Aaron saw it, that's the golden calf that uh, he had made, he built an altar before him. And Aaron made proclamations and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. <coughs> so 
So we see here that Aaron built an altar before the golden calf so that there'd be some kind of, you know, maybe a re resemblance of, you know, their worship to the Lord. See, just because there's an altar doesn't mean that it's an altar to God. See, if we're not careful, brethren, we can be deceived. Just because there may be some things that re resemble the God of the Bible doesn't mean that it's the God of the Bible. See, Aaron even says tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. But no, it's not. It's a feast to the gods of Egypt. You know, but there were burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now, isn't that a good thing? Isn't that what they were supposed to do? Yes, but not to a golden calf. Verse 7, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go, get thee down, for thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf, and have worshipped it, and have sacrificed thereunto, and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. See, people can't blame God for their own corruption. It wasn't that the Lord hadn't told them before. It says they have corrupted themselves. It says they have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. You can't say, ah, oh, but, you know, uh, Aaron said this or Aaron said that. You know, you can't say that. You know, we can't say, oh, but this guy said this or this guy said that. And, you know, because we have a Bible. Amen. We have God's word. What does the Lord say? That's what really matters to God. How about seeing if what Aaron says lines up with what God says? See, we need more of that these days. We need more uh, Bereans. Acts 17.11 says about the Bereans, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. They checked everything against the word of God. Even the words of the Apostle Paul. But back here in Exodus, in chapter 32, look at verse 9. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them and that I may consume them and I will make of thee a great nation. See, the Lord had had enough. He was ready to consume them and start again with Moses. Then Moses pleads for the people. Look at verse 11. And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out, to slay them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath, and repent of this evil against thy people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and says unto them, 
I will multiply your seeds as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. And now we see the long-suffering of the Lord. Look at verse 14. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. See, when the Lord repented of the evil that he thought to do unto the people uh, here, it's not like the evil that we repent of. You know, it would have been punishment that was rightly deserved if he went ahead with it. You know, what the Lord thought to do to the people was just and it was deserving. And there would have been a whole lot of calamity that would have come upon them in an instant, which they rightly deserved if God went ahead with it. But God changed his mind when Moses pleaded for them. You know why he did that? Because the Lord is merciful and gracious long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. The Lord didn't destroy them. He gave them another chance to get right. And he just did this out of the goodness of his heart. So I thank God that he's merciful and he's gracious and he's long-suffering. If it wasn't for God's mercy, none of us could be saved or would be saved. Mercy is God withholding what we rightly deserve. We rightly deserve punishment for our sin. And the Bible clearly says in Romans 3, 23 to 24, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See, mercy is found through faith in Jesus Christ. I also thank the Lord that he is gracious. Grace is bestowing upon us what we don't deserve. We don't deserve the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 7 to 8 says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure, or perhaps for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the long-suffering of the Lord. He didn't have to free the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. They didn't deserve it. But God, out of the goodness of his heart and his long-suffering, did it anyway. But it is meant to teach you something. It is meant to teach you something. The grace of God teaches you something. But first I'll tell you what it doesn't teach. It doesn't teach you that you can just happily remain in your sin. That's what the grace of God doesn't teach you. The grace of God teaches us how serious sin is and how bad it is. It teaches us that sin is so bad that God had to send his only begotten son to suffer and die on the cross to pay the penalty for sin that we can never pay. The grace of God teaches us that we should hate sin and want to live for the Lord. Titus 2, 11 to 15 says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. That means that you don't have an excuse. You can't say, I didn't know. 
You can't say, I didn't hear of Jesus Christ and what he did for me on the cross. Somehow God is able to get that message out to every person. And personally, I can't find one person who hasn't heard of the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm still trying to find them. I'm still trying to find that one person, but I can't. But when I do, I'm going to thank the Lord and praise God and tell them about Jesus. And until then, I'm just going to keep telling people that already know about the cross of Jesus Christ that they should believe and get right with the one they already know about. That's what I'm going to do. But verse 12 says, Teaching us, or for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So if that's not what you're learning from the grace of God, then you have a warped view of the grace of God. The book of Jude says there are some that turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. They teach that uh, the grace of God gives you a license to sin. But it's the opposite. It's the opposite. When you understand and thank God for his grace in Jesus Christ, it teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world. Verse 13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus Christ promised that he's coming back again and his appearing is going to be glorious. As lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. The Bible says he'll gather all those that love him and bring judgment upon all them that receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. They don't care about what Jesus did on the cross to save sinners. The verse 14 says, who gave himself for us, talking about Jesus, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. See, Jesus came not only to wipe our sin debt clean, but also to purify under himself a peculiar people that are zealous of good works. You might say, what are good works? What are good works? Well, the first good work that God would have you to do is to believe on Jesus Christ and get saved. This is the work of God. It's the work of God, actually that you believe on him whom he has sent. It says in John chapter 6. But then in whatever else he has for you to do after that. Unfortunately in our society today there are many and even amongst professing uh, Christians that despise this type of preaching. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. They despise it because they are no different than the majority of Israelites that were led out of Egypt. They still love the ways of Egypt. They are selective with what they want to leave behind. They love the thought of the promised land and the deliverance from slavery, but they want to carry out the ways of Egypt. See, back in Exodus 32, verse 14, 
We see, and the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. In verse 15, and Moses turned and went down from the mount, and the two tables of the testimony were in his hand. The tables were written on both their sides, and on the one side and on the other were they written. And the tables were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, graven upon the tables. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said unto Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. And he said, That's Moses, he said, It is not the voice of them that shout for mastery, neither is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome, but the noise of them that sing do I hear. So you've got Joshua coming down the mountain with Moses, and they both hear the same thing. Joshua, who had been brought up as a slave in Egypt, who kind of lived on the outer, hears the singing and doesn't recognise it as singing. Not like the singing he's used to anyway. To him it sounds like the noise of war. But then you have Moses, who was brought up as an Egyptian, who lived among them every day for many years. He recognises it straight away as singing. It's a sad day when the people of God sound no different in their worship of God than the society around them sounds when they worship their idols. Because that's what was happening. But that's what happens when a golden calf is put in place of where God should be. There's Christians today going to see all these disgusting worldly singers and bands and think that God is somehow okay with it. You know, and then they even copy the sound. Oh, that sounds good. And then they bring it into the church. They set up the stage in the same way. They dim the lights just like they do in these filthy concerts. You know, they might change the lyrics so it's got some kind of resemblance of Christianity. But even Aaron built an altar before the golden calf and declared, saying, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. They even offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. But it was to a golden calf of Egypt. It wasn't to the Lord. Verse 19, And it came to pass, as soon as he came nigh unto the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands and brake them beneath the mount. And he took the calf, which they had made, and burned it in the fire, and ground it to powder, and strawed it upon the water, and made the children of Israel drink it. And Moses said unto Aaron, What did this people unto thee, that thou hast brought so great a sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. Thou knowest the people, that they are set on mischief. So Aaron here, he's resorted to the blame game. You know, it's what the people wanted. You know, they are set on mischief. And I just gave them what they wanted. Verse 23, For they said unto me, Make us gods which shall go before us, 
For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. And I said unto them, Whosoever hath any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, then cast it into the fire, and there came out this calf. So not only the blame game, but he also lies. You know, I just cast it all into the fire and out popped the calf. It's just lies. Verse 4 of chapter 32 says he fashioned it with a graving tool. See, it's amazing what people are capable of saying to deflect responsibility or accountability. Verse 25, And when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among the enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and he said this, and he said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. So you've got all the congregation of Israel, you know, except Moses and Joshua and maybe a, maybe a few others, but all the rest uh, in this fake worship of a golden calf as, as if the calf was the Lord that delivered them out of Egypt. Sometimes it takes a Moses to just stand up and say, who is on the Lord's side? Because it was clear that the side that resembled more of Egypt was not the Lord's side. I praise the Lord for all the sons of Levi that realised and they went over uh, to Moses. But there are also consequences for the sin. And the Lord does something that will make them realise the seriousness of sin and the consequences of it. Verse 27, And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from gate to gate through the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbour. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell, on the, fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. For Moses had said, Consecrate yourselves <coughs> excuse me, today to the Lord, even every man upon his son and upon his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. See, that's very serious, what went on there. But that's how serious God takes rebellion. See, Albert Barnes says about this, he says, the tribe of Levi, that's Moses' own tribe, now distinguished itself by immediately returning to its allegiance and obeying the call to fight on the side of Yahweh. We need not doubt that the 3,000 who were slain were those who persisted in resisting Moses. The spirit of the narrative forbids us to conceive that the act of the Levites was anything like an indiscriminate massacre. An amnesty had been first offered to all, the to, uh, to all by the words, who is on the Lord's side? Those who were forwarded, forward to draw the sword were directed not to spare their closest relations or friends. But this must plainly have been with an understood qualification as regards to the conduct of those who were to be slain. Had it not been so, 
they who were also on the Lord's side would have had to be destroyed as, uh, as well. We need not to stumble at the bold, simple way in which the statement is made. See, every Israelite that refused to come forward rightly deserved to lose their life. But even those that come forward rightly deserve to lose their life. But the Lord stopped at 3,000 of what I believe would have been the, the worst of them. But nevertheless, what a horrible thing to go through. Horrible. Horrible. They, by their own hands, had to take, take out some of their own people. But that's how serious and ugly sin is. And if God were to judge people for their sin straight away, and that's what I believe he was showing here, then no one would stand. And I thank God for Jesus Christ and that none of us are going to have to go through what they went through because Jesus paid it all and he said it is finished. But we have these things written down for us to show us how serious it is that if uh, we rebel against God and how serious he takes sin. But he, he paid it all and he's long-suffering. See, Exodus 34, 6-7 says, but he is merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving the iniquity and transgression and sin. And look at this. And that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. In Deuteronomy 5, 8-10, when the law was re reiterated again to Israel after 40 years of uh, Israelites roaming around in the wilderness with most of the generation that had uh, been there at the time when the Ten Commandments were given, uh, not going over to the Promised Land, they died in the wilderness. But Moses again reads the law. In verse 8 he says, Thou shalt not make thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, <coughs> excuse me, or that is in the waters beneath the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. See, that's the key. Do you hate the Lord and his ways, or do you love the Lord and his ways? If you love the Lord and his ways, then there is mercy for you. If you hate the Lord and his ways, then his long-suffering and his mercy will come to an end. He's still long-suffering toward you, but it will come to an end. But not before he declares who is on the Lord's side. There's always plenty of opportunity for people to get on the Lord's side. Romans 2, 4-11 says, 
or despisest thou the riches, riches of the goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? It's the goodness of God that he forbears with people. It is the goodness of God that he is long-suffering with people. It is the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. Verse 5, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up thy, unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render every man according to his deeds. See, God gives so much time for people to repent and to come back to him, but their heart is impenitent. That means they refuse to repent. They refuse because they love their sin. They love Egypt. They can't get their old life. They don't want to forsake it. And therefore will be judged accordingly. Verse 7, To them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, eternal life. So then, they, they will also be judged accordingly. Who are they? They are believers who have sought the Lord and eternal life through Jesus Christ and love doing what he wants us to do. Verse 8, But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also to the Gentile. But glory, honour and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Look at this, for there is no respect of persons with God. See, the Lord has been long-suffering from the very beginning. Even the days of Noah before the flood came and took them all away, that the, the Lord was long-suffering. 1 Peter 3, 18-20, we read, For the Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. What I believe it's referring to here is all those people in prison now, I believe it's referring to hell that were alive uh, in Noah's day, were preached to in Noah's day. You know, Noah is called a preacher of righteousness in the chapter before this one. Verse 20, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. See, the long-suffering of God waited, waited in the days of Noah for these ones to repent. But they refused to repent, and now they are locked up in hell forever. But that's not because that God was not long-suffering toward them. He was. He waited. But they refused. And then the flood came. 2 Peter 3, 1-15, Peter writes, 
This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Saviour. So we've got to see there that nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. What was spoken before of the holy prophets before was the same as the apostles in Peter's day. It wasn't a different message. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of, of, of the creation. For this they are willingly are ignorant of. Willingly ignorant. That by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. See, this is talking about the flood in, in Noah's day. See, there were scoffers. Scoffers back then walking after <coughs> their own lusts scoffing that the Lord was going to flood the earth. And there are scoffers today walking after their own lusts, scoffing that Jesus Christ is going to come back to judge the earth. Verse 7, But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved under fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But... Now, here, here's the long-suffering of the Lord. I want you to see this. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. You know, you think his judgment is not coming? It's coming. It's coming. Oh, but it's been so long. The flood was so long ago. Now, it, means, it might seem like a long time to us, but not with the Lord. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not bound by time. He could just wrap it all up whenever he wants to. See, people are not guaranteed that they are given life even tomorrow. You could end up facing the judgment of God even sooner if you haven't come to the Lord. But the reason people still have breath and that he hasn't come yet is because he is long-suffering and full of mercy. Verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. That's his promise of judgment, as some men count slackness. I mean, yes, it's going to come when the Lord's ready. But look at this. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, Lord not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, that's the heart of God right there. People perish and go to hell because of their refusal to cross over and join on the Lord's side and accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. That's the reason. Verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So just like the people in uh, the flood in Noah's day that perished, 
They were just eating and drinking, going about their sinful lives, rejecting the long-suffering of God and the preaching of Noah. And then suddenly it was all over. Time was up. The long-suffering of God come to an end. Well, it's going to happen again. It's going to happen again when Jesus comes back the second time. I'm just preaching Bible here. I'm just preaching what the Bible says. Verse 11, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Now I love this, look at this. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise of coming judgment. He's not slack concerning that's coming. But he's also not slack concerning another promise here. Look at this other promise. Nevertheless, according to his promise, uh, nevertheless we, according to his promise, that's if you are saved, look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, is that you here today? Are you looking for this promise? New heavens, new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. But look at this, but while you wait, look at this, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Look at this in verse 15, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. See, Paul, Peter, they all had the same message. That the long-suffering of Jesus Christ is salvation. The long-suffering, the suffering of Jesus Christ is salvation. That's where you find salvation. Through the sufferings of Jesus Christ on the cross, who suffered and died to save us from our sins. And that message just keeps going around the world, around the world, because God is long-suffering. And as Paul says in Romans 10, verse 9 to 13, he says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is over all, is rich unto all that call upon him. Back in chapter 3 of Romans, Paul said, For there is no difference for all that have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 13 in, in this passage says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. See, the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 16 
<coughs> he says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. In verse 16 he says, Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy. mercy. For this cause, he says, I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. See, the Apostle Paul, he understood the long-suffering of Jesus Christ. Out of anybody, as the Apostle Paul is admitting here, uh, to be the chief of sinners, he says about himself, because he persecuted, he persecuted the church of God before he was a saved man. You would think he was the last person that God would show mercy to. But God was long-suffering even to the Apostle Paul. And he is long-suffering to every one of us. If the Lord is long-suffering, we should be also long-suffering. The Apostle Paul, he endured so much for the sake of the gospel and he was long-suffering to all that he met. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 10 to 11, he says, But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me in Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, but out of all of them the Lord delivered me. See, we need to be long-suffering because the Lord is long-suffering. But our long-suffering should never be at the expense of standing for the truth and telling people about their need to be on the Lord's side. That's what our long-suffering should be to. To tell people that they can be saved from their sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. But the long-suffering of God does come to an end. But he gives time. And he's long-suffering. Exodus 34, 6-7 says, And the Lord passed by before him, passed by before Moses, look at this, and proclaimed, and proclaimed his name. This is his name. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and the fourth generation. We've got a long-suffering long God, and I thank the Lord that he is long-suffering. He's abundant in goodness and truth. Don't let his long-suffering run out on you. Because he's been long-suffering to you. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour here today, the Lord has been long-suffering to you. 
And he wants you to get right with him and to trust in him because he is good and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But he will, no, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Let's pray.